We start study 13 by concluding our examination of what Paul taught about the gifts of the Spirit and then we'll move on to explore living by the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. So gifts of the Spirit to conclude, then living by the Spirit and then the fruit of the Spirit. So turn with me first of all to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 25. 1 Corinthians 14 verses 1 to 25 where Paul has more to say on the subject of prophecy and tongues. Now remember that Paul insists on this basic principle and here it is. Whatever is done in the church must contribute to the edification That's the building up of the body of Christ. Whatever is done in the church must contribute to the edification of the body of Christ. Now this edification principle, as we could call it, crops up again and again throughout this passage. So be on the lookout for it as we go through. So what that means is he's saying that what's spoken in the church must be intelligible and in a language that everyone understands. And that's why prophecy is more desirable than bringing a message in tongues. So in verses 2 to 5, we read, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, in other words, he's not speaking to the congregation, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. There's that principle. However, all the spiritual gifts are to be sought after. And he says in verse 1 that they are to be ministered in the spirit of love, which we talked about last time. In verse 1 he reminds them of that and he says, and I quote, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the spirit especially prophecy. And he says especially prophecy because it edifies the people directly. So if you bring a message in tongues, you need someone to give the interpretation. Okay, so that's why he's saying prophecy is more important, if you like, than tongues, simply because it edifies the people in the church, where speaking in tongues edifies only the person that's giving it, particularly if it's what I call praise tongues rather than message tongues. Now there were those in Corinth who felt that manifesting the gifts was not only important but it was the most important thing. Manifesting the gifts is the most important thing and they, that particular group, mainly emphasised tongues as a proof of their spirituality. So I speak in tongues therefore I'm spiritually superior to the rest of you is what they were saying. They were implying also that tongues was the most important of all the gifts. Now Paul disagrees with them, as we'll see in verses 6 to 13. Paul disagrees with them and makes his point by referring to musical instruments and other languages of the world. So he uses two symbols to get across his point. Firstly, musical instruments, and secondly, other languages of the world. So looking down at verse 6, and I quote, If I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, 
who will get ready for battle. So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. I think that's a lovely uh, phrase. I'm sure in different translations put it slightly differently, but you will just be speaking into the air. It goes on. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker's a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. Okay, so again, he's saying tongues, fine, but we need in the church to be intelligible so that we build one another up. However, Paul says that he both prayed and sang praise in tongues. He confirms that when a person speaks, prays, praises, or sings in tongues, the human mind does not produce the language. Verse 14, quote, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And by unfruitful there, he means not involved in the process. That's how my mind is unfruitful, because it's not my mind that's making these words happen. It is my spirit as inspired by the Holy Spirit as I speak out in the tongue that the Spirit gives me. So Paul calls for a balance. He calls for a balance in the believer's prayer and worship. In verses 15 to 17, he writes, quote, So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. So he's saying, I will pray in tongues, but I will also pray in my own language, in languages that are readily intelligible. I'm going to do both. I'm going to get a balance in my worship, in my prayer. And then he goes on, I will sing with my spirit. In other words, I will sing in tongues, but I will also sing with my understanding. I will sing in my language. And then he goes, otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? Right? So, if I give a prayer in tongues in the congregation, nobody knows what I'm saying. So they can't support me, says Paul. They can't say, Amen, brother, or whatever, you know, and get blessed by it in that way that you do when people lead in worship. Right? He says, but if I speak in a language they understand, you understand, then you can support me in prayer. You know what I'm saying. Right? You can give me your yeas and amens and hallelujahs and whatever else you might want to do. Not so much maybe in some churches as in others. Anyway, we'll draw a veil over that and move on. Uh, otherwise, when you're praising God in the Spirit, how can someone say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. No one else is edified. That's the point. Back to the edification uh, principle again. So he's not saying... We shouldn't pray in tongues or we shouldn't praise in tongues. He's just saying that in the congregation, it's more helpful if you do it so people can understand what you're saying. But of course, your personal praise, when you're just standing and praising God, praising tongues then, that's absolutely fine. So he's not against that. It's just when we're speaking out into the congregation setting. That's what he's drawing a distinction between. So... It's clear from this that Paul believes that using tongues in prayer and worship is important. But it's purely personal because it edifies only the individual concerned and is understood only by God. On the other hand, using our mind, in other words, speaking in the language understood by the congregation, using our mind in prayer and worship allows the rest of the people to understand what we're saying to be blessed and built up by it, and to affirm it. So that's a little just a summary there of what we've been seeing already. 
Now Paul spoke in tongues in worship and prayer a great deal. But when he was in the church, rather than on his own, he was very conscious of edifying others rather than himself. And in verses 18 to 19, we get a sense of Paul's annoyance. We get a sense of his annoyance and frustration with the I speak in tongues so I'm superior clique in the Corinthian church. And he writes these words and he says, I love this, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. In other words, you clique who reckon you're so super spiritual, I'm telling you, I speak in tongues a lot more than you do. But in the church, in other words, when I'm speaking out in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I think he makes the point quite dramatically there, don't you? I'd rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 in a tongue. So in summary, Paul is not against people speaking in tongues. He does it himself all the time, either as part of their personal praise and worship or when they pray. Nor does he disapprove of someone manifesting the gift of tongues, message tongues if you like, in order to bring a message from God to the church, providing it's followed by the interpretation so everyone can be edified. So that's what this section uh, is all about. And then he moves on and he says that tongues, actually, when people hear tongues, it can be a sign to unbelievers. Hearing tongues can be a sign to unbelievers, but it does depend on the circumstances. Now, when he's writing this bit, he's probably got Isaiah 28 in mind, Isaiah 28 where it seems that the foreign tongue of the Assyrians was a sign to unbelieving Israel that God's judgment was about to fall upon them. So that's the context he's drawing from here. And he writes in verse 22 that, quote, tongues are a sign for unbelievers. So that's the historical situation that he got in mind. Now, the day of Pentecost proves, uh, or provides, I should say, a good example of this. Because if you remember, on that occasion, unbelievers heard God being praised in their own language from the mouths of those who didn't speak that language naturally, which caused many of them to wonder what was happening. If you look at Acts 2, 4 to 12 to refresh your memory of what happened on the day of Pentecost. So they heard God being praised in their own language, but these people were speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, languages they'd never learned. However, he says in verse 22, prophecy is for believers, because simply because they're disposed to hear it and to respond to it. On the other hand, if unbelievers come into the church and hear only tongues being spoken, which they do not understand, they'll think the place is a complete madhouse, won't they? If all they hear is tongues, they're going to think, get me out of here quick. Verse 23 says, will they not say that you are out of your mind? (laughs) In other words, it's a madhouse. However, if they hear prophecy, albeit intended for believers... They will understand what's being said and, quote, be convicted of sin, verses 24 and 5, convicted of sin as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Okay, so a little bit complicated to sort out, but that's what he's saying about tongues as a sign to unbelievers. Situations where it would be, as on the day of Pentecost, situations where it wouldn't be, where prophecy would rather be the means, although given for believers, where unbelievers would be brought to say, hey, but say, something's going on here. This is different. What's happening? Okay, and make them think and bring them to God. So that's 
how he sees that. Now, the manifestation of the gifts, particularly tongues, interpretation and prophecy, remember we have them in three groups of three, so we're talking about the power to say, which was causing all the problems in Corinth. In fact, it was causing unedifying chaos and confusion in the Corinthian church. So Paul gives instructions so that this will change and be replaced by order. Remember, Paul is not only very keen on edification, he's also extremely keen on order, order in the church, so that everyone will know what's happening, and here we come back to it, so the church can be edified. How can it be edified if three or four people are simultaneously giving a message in tongues? Or three or four people are simultaneously giving a prophecy? Chaos, confusion, what's going on? So he, that's why, that's what was happening in Corinth. There was no after you, oh no, no, you first. It was all, mine's more important, I'm in there. In respect to what anybody else is saying. So this is why we get these instructions here, which might seem a little bit strange to us, but that's why it was given. Okay? So what does he say? In verses 20, end of 26 through to 31, he's saying that there are to be a maximum of three messages in tongues with the interpretation and three prophecies. That's the maximum there's to be. And you're to keep to that order. And these are to be given one at a time, not simultaneously. So the order will prevail. So this is why it says, and I quote, Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. There's the principle again. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. In fact, he says elsewhere that the person who brings the message in tongues should be seeking God for the interpretation. Going on, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. So that's the reason why he's laying this down. All right? It was so that it would bring order into the chaos that was Corinth. Now, did you notice there that Paul makes it clear that all the messages given must not just be accepted as coming from God, but they must be tested. They must be tested by the congregation. So whenever you hear a prophecy given, you're not to just accept it, you're to test it. Because right? let's face it, anybody can stand up and say anything purporting to come from God. And we have to be aware of this. This is where the gift of discernment is so useful. We discern the source of it. Is this God or is this coming from elsewhere? Is it flesh? Is it of the devil? What is it? All right? So we need to test it. Now, unfortunately, Paul doesn't give a list of such tests. He says it's to be tested, but he doesn't give us a list, but it is clear from his teaching in chapters 12 and 14 that he would expect true messages to be given in the spirit of love. That's one thing that's really clear, isn't it? Remember how he sandwiches the um, chapter on love between his two chapters on the gifts of the spirit, that these messages would glorify and acknowledge Jesus and that they would edify or develop the believers. And Romans 1.11 is quite interesting with that in mind. Now, other suitable tests might well include whether or not the message makes sense, whether or not it is in accordance with the teaching of the Scriptures. You wouldn't think anything uh, purporting to come from God would conflict with God's Word, would you? So that's a good test. You know, does it line up with God's Word? Um, it also makes sense to see whether it witnesses with the spirit of the hearers. You know, when you hear it, sometimes your spirit just sort of jumps within you and think, yeah, I, I, I accord with that. I respond to that. 
that sits well with me. Whereas on other occasions you think, oh no, 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 something wrong with this. This does not, it's right, okay? And also that it comes from a trustworthy channel. That's another thing, okay? So these are supplementary other tests that I think we could reasonably apply. Now, some were saying that they couldn't control themselves when the Spirit came on them and that they weren't responsible for their actions and what they were doing in the congregation. And Paul says, absolute nonsense. Verse 32, Paul tells those who were saying that they couldn't control themselves when the Spirit came upon them, that this is not the case. So verse 32, he writes, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. So anything that's from God, you could just stop saying it doesn't kind of like take you over you know people who are possessed with evil spirits it does take them over I've seen it it controls them they need exorcism they need ministry okay it's not the case with the Holy Spirit if something's out of control it's not the Holy Spirit it really isn't and then he goes on verse 33 quote for God is not a God of disorder but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Now that's interesting, isn't it? See, this problem seems to be particularly manifesting itself in Corinth, but what Paul was saying, in other words, is that other churches manage to have order in worship. So he's saying, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. They manage to have order in worship and the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit, and so must you, here in Corinth. Right? Just like the other churches manage it, and so can you, and so will you. Right? So he's really, being, he's really sort of banging the tub about this, isn't it? But the reason is, it was causing so much confusion and chaos, and the people were not being edified, and Paul's heart was breaking about it. And he said, we've really got to do something about this. So, there you've got it. Right? Straight from the shoulder. You know, in what Paul had to say about prophecy and tongues and how it should all happen in the church. Now we're going to move on to look at the fruit of the Spirit. And as we do that, um, what comes out is how we should live by the Spirit. Now you may have wondered why the fruit of the Spirit appear in the epistle to the Galatians. Why not somewhere else? Well, there's a good reason for that. In his letter to the Galatians, which you remember, of course, was the very first letter he ever wrote to anybody. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul wants to bring them to realise and understand that the Holy Spirit is to be their guide in their Christian life. That the Holy Spirit is to be their guide in the Christian life. So, he exhorts them not to allow anyone or anything else other than the Holy Spirit to influence their lives. And we see in that letter that Paul encourages the Galatians to submit themselves to the Holy Spirit, so that he, the Holy Spirit, can empower them to live lives that are no longer characterised by sinfulness, but rather characterised by godliness. However, and here's why he's writing it to the Galatians, it seems to me, because you see the Galatians had a bit of a reputation The Galatians had a reputation of not being keen to submit to anybody. That was the reputation they had, not being keen to submit to anybody. Now, in Paul's day, there was a great deal of tension in the region of Galatia, which today is sort of central Turkey, because the people who lived there, and that would have included the residents of Iconium, Lystra and Derbe, they were reluctant to submit to the superior force of Rome. They were unruly. They were uncooperative. 
and they resisted Rome at every end and turn. They refused to change their attitudes and their lifestyles. And they stuck passionately to their own culture and to their own languages such that the Roman gods and culture had only a limited effect on their lives. Now the result of this resistance was frequently frequent military intervention by the Romans in Galatia. Emperor Augustus apparently kept permanently two legions of soldiers in the south of the region to deal to go in and deal with any trouble. That was the situation. It wasn't just a few hotheads. This was a whole cultural thing among the people there. And so you have an atmosphere that shot through with simmering tension as the superior forces of Rome sought to impose their will on the obdurate Galatians and bring about change. Now that's the background. Now when you see that, you can understand why Paul's addressing them in this way. So in his letter, he, Paul brings them face to face with another superior force with another superior force not the Romans this time but the Holy Spirit a superior force whose power is far more awesome than that of Rome like the Romans the Holy Spirit wants to bring about changes in their lives unlike the Romans he wants to do it for their benefit not for his. And he wants them to submit willingly to his intervention in their lives rather than resist it tooth and nail as they did the Romans. So in Galatians 5, verses 16 through to chapter 6, verse 2 and chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, in those passages there, Paul exhorts them that's the Galatians, to, and I quote, live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit, so that they, verse 16 of chapter 5 this is, quote, will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So they're to live by the Spirit, so they will not gratify the desires of the flesh, which he then goes on to list examples of in verses 19 to 21 of chapter 5 there. And Paul reminds them of the battle which rages daily in the life of the believer between what the sinful nature, or the flesh, wants us to do and what the Spirit wants us to do. And in verse 17 he says, and I quote, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. That's the end of the quote. Now Paul would go on to elaborate on this subject in his later letter to the Romans. If you look at Romans 7, 15 to 23, that's the famous part where he's talking about I keep on doing what I don't want to do. It's that passage. That's Romans 7, 15 to 23. And we actually looked at it in some detail back in study 7. So Paul goes on to tell the Galatians that the law, which was provided by God to guide the Israelites, has now been superseded. Verse 18, chapter 5 of Galatians, quote, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now this was radical stuff. This was mind-blowing stuff, particularly for the Jews who'd become Christians. Paul's saying that there's now a superior guide available to God's people, and that's the Spirit, superior to the law. The law that they've been brought up to value and to treasure and to follow and to depend on Paul's saying, it's been replaced by the Spirit, who is now to be your guide. Whereas the law was a guide book, the Spirit is our guide. The Spirit is not a guide book. 
The law was a guidebook, but the Spirit is a guide because you see, the Spirit, Paul says, mentors us individually, places us on his personalised program, which is designed to suit our individual needs and is appropriate for our particular personality. The law couldn't do that. The law didn't intend to do that. The law was like a catch-all for everybody. It was just a guidebook. But when we allow the Spirit to come into our lives, He becomes our guide and He puts us on His personal plan, if you like, tailored to our needs. Wonderful thing to think about, isn't it? Now, Paul applies three criteria to judge whether a person is living by the Spirit. And we see them listed here starting in chapter 5, verse 24. And the first one is to see whether their lives are characterised by sacrificial service. That's his first criteria, to judge whether a person is living by the Spirit. Are their lives characterised by sacrificial service? So in verse 24 he says, quote, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And they're now looking to serve God. They've sacrificed themselves. They're no longer serving themselves. Now also, Paul's looking for evidence of such sacrificial service. So evidence that they are caring, caring for the needs of others by restoring them. So if you drop down to 6 verse 1, you'll see, and I quote, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. So that's a test of whether we're living by the Spirit. Are we caring for the needs of others by restoring them? Also, are we caring for their needs by bearing their burdens? So he goes on in verse 2, quote, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And thirdly, sacrificial service involves caring for the needs of others by doing good to them. Verses 9 to 10 of chapter 6, quote, Let us not become weary in doing good. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Okay, so... Are they caring by restoring, bearing their burdens and doing good? These are marks of people who are living by the Spirit. And it takes sacrificial service to do that. So that's the first criteria. The second one is to see whether they are showing the right attitude towards others, namely living in harmony with them, respecting them and supporting them. So back to chapter 5, verses 25 to 26, we read, quote, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So we're not puffed up, we're not agitating others, we're not jealous, we live in harmony. We respect others we support them. That's the second criteria. And the third criteria of whether a person is living by the Spirit is to see whether there is evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. So verses 22 to 23, we get what we've been waiting for. But the fruit of the Spirit is, and you know the rest, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, you see, are set in that context. Too often we just pull the verse out and we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. But you see, it's in a whole area of living by the Spirit. So it's not just something on its own, the fruit of the Spirit, really. It's within this setting. Now, although Paul does not go on to develop what he means by each fruit... 
It is possible to tease out the meanings, I believe, that he probably had in mind by, first of all, looking at the Greek words that he used and understanding what they mean. Secondly, by looking at other places in his writings where he mentions these qualities. And thirdly, how these terms are used elsewhere in New Testament teaching. So if we do that, we've got a chance of working out what Paul had in mind when he listed these fruit. But notice, before he actually lists the fruit, he lists 15 vices. 15 vices that are to be found in the lives of unbelievers and nine virtues which the Holy Spirit is looking for in the lives of believers, namely the fruit of the Spirit. Now, here's something to get clear. Both of these are intended as sample lists. These are sample lists. They are not box-ticking lists. Thinking, right, I've got all nine, I've ticked them, right, okay. No, it's just a, a sample. They're sample lists, there are many more. The Holy Spirit wants to impact the lives of believers in such a way that they produce such fruit as listed. Because otherwise they'd have just said, well, what do you mean by the fruit of the Spirit? Give us some examples. That's what you'd say, wouldn't you? So Paul gives some examples. So he wants to impact the lives of the believers, does the Holy Spirit, in such a way that they produce such fruit as these as evidence that he lives and is at work in them, that their lives are being transformed, that they are growing in spiritual maturity, that they are becoming more like Christ. That's what this is all about. It's a pro- part of the process of sanctification, becoming holy, becoming like Christ, who, of course, displayed all the fruit listed here and many more besides. Now, it seems to me that these fruit are, in fact, natural characteristics which are supernaturally developed, enhanced, and I suppose the best word to use in the context of fruit is fertilised by the Holy Spirit. I'll say that again. The fruit are natural characteristics, in my opinion, which are supernaturally developed, enhanced and fertilised by the Holy Spirit. They are the product of us working in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Now, by contrast, the vices in the lives of unbelievers are evidence that the Holy Spirit does not live within them. So if you've got those 15 vices, if people are displaying those vices, you could say the Holy Spirit is not living in them. Because if he did, they wouldn't be shown. They wouldn't be happening. However, and this is really important to notice, this doesn't mean that the lives of unbelievers can't or don't show any of the nine virtues listed. I mean, before you became a believer, I'm sure you showed some of those fruit of the Spirit. They are natural characteristics. The difference is the fruit of the Spirit in the Christian has been fertilised by the Holy Spirit. And we'll see what difference that makes in a moment. So, let's get this clear. It doesn't mean unbelievers can't do or show any of the nine virtues. They can. They can. Here's the difference, but not in the same intensity and quality as they should be seen in the lives of believers. And that, to me, is an awesome challenge to all Christians. Because sometimes we can say, well, you know, someone believers appear to be far more loving than we are. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? Now, unlike the gifts of the Spirit, which are bestowed by the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose and edify the church, the fruit of the Spirit grow within the believer. The fruit of the Spirit grow within the believer. So with the gifts of the Spirit, the believer is a channel through whom the Spirit works. 
not for the person's benefit, but for the benefit of others. Fruit of the Spirit, completely different. The fruit of the Spirit grow within me, within you, within the believer, as the result of three things. As the result, firstly, of obeying God daily as we live in the Spirit. Secondly, as a result of resisting the flesh. And thirdly, as a result of being open to the Spirit and what he's saying to us. So, with those things in mind, let's start to examine the nine fruit of the Spirit. Love is the most important fruit of the Spirit. Because, you see, love encapsulates all the others, rather like an orange in its segments, if you like. If you think of an orange in its segments, look at the fruit of the Spirit like that, that love is like the orange, and all these others are the segments of it, breaking it down into bits, if you like. It could be said, you see, that if we truly love, then we will automatically display all the other fruit of the Spirit, and the more besides, automatically do it if we truly love. Now this word love of course in English is pretty pathetic really because it it covers a multitude of things. Other languages have got it more sensible in that they have different words for different types of love. So in Greek for example as many of you will know there are four words for love and they all mean different things. The first one is eros. Eros, of course, is about physical passion, love, from which, of course, we get erotic. Secondly, philia, P-H-I-L-I-A, is love for our nearest and dearest. Thirdly, storge is affection. Affection, for example, as in parents for children. And the fourth one is agape, which is the type of love that's listed here. This is agape love. Now, agape has been defined as, and I quote, unconditional giving for another's highest good. I think that's quite a good definition if you think about it. I'll say it again. Unconditional giving for another's highest good. And of course, we see this gloriously demonstrated in Jesus. Agape love. Now, agape love does not depend on whether the other person returns that love. Agape love does not depend on whether the other person returns that love. So in other words, I'm only going to agape you if you agape me. That is an agape misunderstanding. I agape you irrespective of how you respond because it's about unconditional love. Agape love is serving, not self-serving. Agape love is sacrificial, not selfish. See Romans 5 verse 8 and Philippians 2 Verses 7 to 8. Now, as we've already seen in study 12, Paul describes what love does and doesn't do. And we are to agape others, including our enemies, in that way. Now, as with all the fruit of the Spirit, as as we've mentioned, it is possible to show them naturally, to a certain extent, For example, many people who aren't Christians do good works, give to charity, and so on. However, natural love has its limits, doesn't it? Natural love has its limits, because it is often influenced by response. But supernatural, spirit fruit love doesn't have any limits. It keeps on loving unconditionally whereas human love given to people is often conditional 
It's given on condition that they love you back. That's con- uh, that is the condition. So, here's the difference. We are to love as God loves, without limit and unconditionally. That's the supernatural bit, which distinguishes us from the love that people show in the world. That's the supernatural bit. And that's the bit, the agape bit, that shows that God is at work within us by his spirit, producing supernatural fruit. Next in Paul's list come two fruit which are not shown outwardly. Interesting. But rather are experienced inwardly. And those two are joy and peace. Joy and peace. Now the word kara, the Greek word kara, C-H-A-R-A, is the most frequently used word for joy in the New Testament. But it doesn't mean the sort of joy which depends on our circumstances or the situation we find ourselves in. Nor is it the joy that comes from material things. Nor is it the product of temporary excitement or pleasure. So it's nothing to do with any of those that might give us joy. You see, the foundation of kara is in God. It's a supernatural joy that stems from our right relationship with God knowing that whatever happens, our lives are in God's hands. Now, naturally speaking, we may be sorrowful, we may be depressed, we may be upset, we may be going through a dark time, but we can still know this joy welling up within us. It's a fruit of God's Spirit dwelling within us. I put it like this, the welling is evidence of the dwelling. The welling is evidence of the dwelling. See, despite all that he suffered, Paul never lost his joy. It's quite an amazing thing to think of when you consider all the trials he went through. Of course, a good example of this is when he and Silas were in that Philippian jail. Remember Acts 16? That we looked at way back in study two. And you'll remember how they were stripped and they were beaten and they were severely flogged and they were stuck in the middle of the prison with their feet fastened in the stocks. And at midnight, which of course is always symbolic of the darkest time in our lives, they still sang hymns of praise to God in the middle of the night as joy welled up within them. So the kind of joy we're talking about here is the fruit of the Spirit is not one that's produced by situations, circumstances, quite the contrary. We still feel this joy when everything is against us. It wells up within us. It's a supernatural joy. And in the same way, the peace that Paul speaks about here does not depend on what's happening to us. This is the difference between the peace that the world gives and the peace that God gives. And remember, Jesus said to his disciples, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you, I give you my peace. And this is the difference. Unbelievers do not experience such joy and peace because it's of the Spirit. They're the fruit of God's Spirit dwelling within us and well up within us even in times of unhappiness and turmoil. Supernatural joy and supernatural peace are spirit-based, not nature-based. There are ours despite our circumstances, not because of our circumstances. And if my experience is anything to go by, the greatest turmoil is often the time when we experience the greatest peace. It's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Living in the kingdom, that is so often the case. Now, the Greek word for peace is irene. 
E-I-R-E-N-E, -E, Irene. And this word, Irene, actually describes the feelings of relief and rest that come after a fracture has been reset. So if you think, if you've had a, if you've had a broken leg, like I have playing football, or a broken finger, or a broken toe, or a broken elbow like I had playing football, you get this feeling of, Phew, the pain's gone when it's been reset. And that's the word that Paul uses to describe this peace. And as Paul points out, we experience God's peace for the first time when our fractured relationship with him, fractured by sin, is restored. So it's all about the restoration of the fracture. So when our fractured relationship with Christ is restored, Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as with joy, that sense of peace grows as we grow in our knowledge of God and our love for him. So that's joy and peace, not shown outwardly, but both experienced inwardly. Not subject to conditions, but supernatural within us. The welling is evidence of the dwelling, that it wells up within us, even in bad times. Moving on then to patience and kindness. Patience and kindness. The Greek word translated patience, which is also rendered long-suffering or forbearance, is macrothumia. Macrothumia is used to describe a person who is slow to get angry. A person who is slow to get angry. And the flavour of the word also includes a person who has an opportunity to get revenge but doesn't and puts up with it instead. Opportunity to get revenge but doesn't. And Paul is expecting believers to be long-suffering and to stick with it in trials and situations we are not enjoying. He's also expecting believers to show patience with people who do wrong to us or people who rub us up the wrong way. Patience, a fruit of the Spirit, something that unbelievers wouldn't stick it. Unbelievers would give up with somebody after a while, but the fruit of the Spirit keeps on being patient, keeps on being kind. And the word for kindness in the Greek is krestotes. Krestotes, which is also rendered graciousness. Kindness and graciousness. Krestotes. And kindness and graciousness produce a tender relationship between people in the church, which Paul found lacking in places like Corinth. Corinth and Christotes did not go together. Tender relationship between people. There's too, far too much one-upmanship going on in Corinth. Far too much cliqueiness. Not much Christotes, which is what, of course, Paul sought to address. Now, as the fruit of kindness and graciousness grow within us under the influence of the Spirit, they'll be seen in the way we treat one another in the church, just as the lack of it was shown in the church in Corinth. Moving on then to goodness and faithfulness. The Greek word translated goodness is agathosune, and it means doing good in a generous way. Not just doing good, but doing it generously. Doing it abundantly. Doing it above and beyond what might be expected. Showing generosity of spirit. And Paul tells us that believers have been saved by God's grace to do good works. To practice 
goodness. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, quote, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. To do good work. So good works are evidence of our salvation. They're evidence of our repentance. Paul instructs Timothy in this first letter, chapter 6, verse 18, quote, command them, that's in other words his congregation, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. To be rich in good deeds and to be generous. And it seems that Paul's expecting that the result of such displays of goodness will be people coming to know God for themselves. Because they'll say, hey, we don't see this in normal, everyday life. It's not a characteristic of the kingdom of the world, but it should be a characteristic of the kingdom of God. Unbelievers do good works, but humanly speaking, goodness has limits. Goodness has limits. The goodness shown by believers should have no limits. That's the difference. That's the supernatural bit. Now this can only be achieved through the work of the Holy Spirit within us, producing the fruit of goodness, because naturally we wouldn't go that far. It wouldn't be unlimited. It would be limited. And of course, producing the fruit of goodness should include doing good to our enemies. Now that's not so evident, I would suggest, among unbelievers. But it should be amongst believers. The Greek word translated faithfulness is pistos. Pistos means being faithful, trustworthy and reliable. That's the full aspect of the word pistos in the Greek. Now this cannot be achieved merely in our own strength. It's the fruit of the Spirit at work within us. Now, faithfulness can be seen in our lives in three main ways. In belief, in trials, and in service. Belief, trials, and service. So, faithfulness in belief means believing God's promises and believing that he will answer prayer even though nothing seems to be happening. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit within us because unbelievers would give up believing. You speak to unbelievers who pray. They say they don't pray anymore. Why? Because nothing happened. Right? It's not faithfulness as a fruit of the Spirit. It's not belief as a fruit of the Spirit. Then you've got faithfulness in trials. This means staying faithful and standing firm when things go wrong or when things are against us. Again, this is a work of the Holy Spirit within us because unbelievers would just give up. And faithful in service means being faithful in using what God has given us and being faithful in doing what God has given us to do when, humanly speaking, we would have given up long ago. So again, there you've got faithfulness as a fruit of the Spirit, the characteristics you would see. And then we come to gentleness and self-control. Now the Greek word translated gentle also rendered meek and humble, considerate and those of a gentle spirit, all that's involved in gentleness, is praotes. So that's the full flavour of praotes. Gentleness, meekness, humility, considerateness, gentle spirit. And Paul urges believers to, quote, be completely humble and gentle, Ephesians 4.2, to pursue gentleness, 1 Timothy 6.11, to let your gentleness be evident to all, Philippians 4.5. And Paul also refers to the meekness, the humility and the gentleness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1. Now, priorities can also be defined as, and I quote, the mean between excessive anger on the one extreme and extreme apathy on the other extreme. 
the quality of a person who was always angry at the right time and never at the wrong time. And of course, Jesus demonstrated this for us when he cleansed the temple. Matthew 21. Jesus was being meek. He cleansed the temple. You see, being meek doesn't mean keeping quiet about what's wrong. In fact, it means the opposite. Believers are to stand up against what is contrary to Bible teaching. But any action taken or protest made should be done in a controlled and dignified manner, as Jesus illustrated during that incident in the temple. Jesus never lost control of himself. He acted dramatically because he was correcting what had gone wrong in the temple in this sort of symbolic way. Meekness isn't weakness. Some people mistake it for that. Meekness is not weakness. Under the control of God, meekness is strength and gentleness is power. Now the Greek word translated self-control is ekrateia. And this is a term used to describe the athlete's discipline with regard to their body. The athlete's discipline with regard to their body. So think about what Olympic athletes have to do with their body, the self-control that is required, the discipline that is needed to get up at five o'clock every morning and run so far or swim so far or whatever, even in the dark nights. As he says in 1 Corinthians 9.25, quote, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. So believers are to be disciplined. Believers are to be disciplined in spirit, mind and body, exercising restraint. Exercising restraint over our impulses, emotions, feelings and desires. 2 Timothy 1.7, quote, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. Self-discipline. Now such self-discipline and self-control may mean abstinence in some areas. And it certainly involves the principle of moderation. Applying self-control and self-discipline to our lives can be very difficult, as I'm sure you all know as well as I do. can be very difficult. And as with all the fruit of the Spirit, we need God's Spirit to help us. In a way, that's why they're called the fruit of the Spirit. We need God's Spirit to help us so that it will grow far beyond what can be achieved merely by human willpower and become evidence Evidence of God impacting and working supernaturally in our lives. So I hope that's helped with understanding what the gifts of the Spirit are about and what they are. Now I want to conclude this study with a look at some fascinating verses in Exodus 28. Look at some fascinating verses in Exodus 28 which can be seen as linking together the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit. Exodus 28. And I'm looking at verse 31 and then 33 to 34 of Exodus 28. And there it says, and I quote, Make the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth. Make pomegranates of blue, purple and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe with gold bells between them. The gold bells and the pomegranates are to alternate around the hem of the robe. So try and picture this robe at the hem and you've got a bell followed by a pomegranate, followed by a bell, followed by a pomegranate. You don't have two pomegranates together and you don't have two bells together. They alternate round. Now, in case you don't know, the pomegranate fruit is like an apple in shape 
It's a mixture of yellow, brown and maroon in colour. Its juice makes a refreshing drink and a syrup is made from its seeds and a strong medicine is made from the blossom of the pomegranate tree. So it's a useful thing to have around, particularly in cultures many years ago. Now, whereas the pomegranates represent the fruit of the spirit, the golden bells on the hem of the robe may be taken to symbolise the gifts of the Spirit. Because like bells, the gifts are both seen and heard. The order round the hem of the robe, as I've said, was a bell, then a pomegranate. Now for this to happen, there would have to be an equal number of each. It doesn't take a mathematical genius to work that out. And as we've seen, there are nine gifts balanced by nine fruit. Nine gifts balanced by nine fruit. Now, as a Jewish scholar, Paul would surely have known about the bells and the pomegranates on the hem of the high priest's robe. So, can the fact that Paul listed an equal number of gifts and fruit and placed his chapter on love, which, remember, encapsulates all the fruit, between his two chapters on the gifts... Could that have been a coincidence? It seems to me that Paul's deliberately following the pattern of alternating the bells and the pomegranates. And interestingly, in chapter 13, he talks about, if I use the gifts of the Spirit, basically just to paraphrase, but I don't have love, what am I like? I'm like a crashing cymbal, clanging bells some versions, and crashing symbols. Again, he's writing about how you've got to have a balance between the gifts and the fruit. This balance and this interplay between the gifts and the fruit could be said to be foreshadowed by what we see round the hem of the garment of the high priest. In conclusion then, whereas the gifts of the Spirit need to be manifested in order to edify the church. The fruit of the Spirit need to be in evidence in order to show Christ to the world. So the gifts of the Spirit to edify the church. The fruit of the Spirit to show Christ to the world.